Well, good morning again. We're going to be continuing our series this morning in Acts uh, that we've entitled Sent, and hopefully week by week it uh, becomes more and more obvious that that's an appropriate name for such a series on such a book. Uh, I wonder if you've ever heard it said, or perhaps you've said it yourself, if we could just get back to the early church. If we just get back to the early church and the key things that they did and the way they did it, then everything would be much, much better. Everything would be how it should be. Uh, that's a question that's been asked often uh, down through the uh, centuries. And in fact, whole movements or even denominations have begun uh, trying to attempt that, to become like the early church as much as they understand it was to be. But the question is always should be asked, how much like the early church should we be? How much like the early church should, be, should we be? Or perhaps you've asked a different question that goes something like this. Why does there seem to be such a disconnect between what I read in the book of Acts, for example, of the early church and what I actually experience of the church now. Why such a disconnect between those two things, what I read and what I experience? Well, to answer these questions, we need to ask another question. And it's the, what you might call the descriptive and prescriptive question. Let me help you understand. It means you've got to ask this. How much of what we read is Luke describing what happened at this moment in God's unfolding plans and purposes? First question. And second question how much of what we read in Luke's version of Luke's book of Acts, how much of what we read is Luke prescribing what should always happen among God's people in God's unfolding purpose? How much is Luke describing what happened? How much is Luke prescribing what should happen? They're very, very important questions for us to ask and answer as we read the book of Acts, and I think we'll see that fairly clearly in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to, Luke, to Acts chapter 4, and we'll read it today, and hopefully you'll see as we go through why those two questions are pretty important. Acts 4 verse 32 through to chapter 5 verse 16. Acts 4 verse 32, I'm reading from the ESV. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as any had need. 
Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words... He fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we just come to you this morning and we come to uh, yeah, a, a, a very tricky part of your word for us to understand to know how it applies and the implications of it for our lives. Please teach us by your spirit. Please help us to grasp what's happening here. Please change us. Please challenge us. Please convict us and please comfort us with your word, by your spirit, for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, I want us this morning to think from this passage as we ask those questions about descriptive and prescriptive about three principles that are true from this part of God's word for all Christians for all time. And the first is this. And we've seen this already in the book of Acts. God shapes and strengthens his church. God shapes 
and strengthens his church. In verse 32 to 37, that's what you see, isn't it? We see this incredibly wonderful snapshot, if you like, of God's people. Notice the people brought together by the gospel, uh, shaped by the gospel, and strengthened by the gospel. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Uh, notice that the, the uh, central factor or the key point of, of why they are like they are is because they believed. This message of the risen and reigning Jesus had been told to them. And they had believed, not just a mental assent, not just agreeing with you know, some facts about Jesus. Yes, oh yes, he died. And oh, oh yes, he rose. Yeah, yeah I believe that. I, I, give, I give assent to that. That's not what we're talking about here. That's actually not what biblical faith is at all. Biblical faith is, yes, reasonable. That is, we believe facts. But it's more than that. It's entrusting yourself to those facts. It's actually dependent trust in the person that those truths are about. So all who believed, all who heard the message of Jesus' death and resurrection and put their hope and trust in him were of one heart and one soul. Notice the link between the preaching of the risen Jesus, faith in the risen Jesus, and the grace of God. Verse 3. Sorry, not verse 3, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. There they are, proclaiming Jesus risen. The people have believed and great grace was upon them all. You've got to love that, right? We talk about grace. Luke says, great grace was upon them all. It must have been tangible, almost so you can... Touch it so obvious and evident among these new believers, this new church. Uh, This is how the church comes into being in the first place. This is how you become part of God's people, by hearing about Jesus and putting your hope and trust in him. Suddenly he brings you to himself and he brings you to his people and you are now part of his church, which is then shaped by the same message that creates it in the first place. So you then you brought into the church through the gospel and then you are shaped by it from there on. I mean, think about these people. How else could this happen? This is a radical community, don't you think? Like incredible radical. Verse 32b. Try and say this for yourself. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. My goodness. How does that happen? That's the power of the gospel gripping people's lives so that their grip on their stuff is loosened. It's a miracle of the... No wonder Luke says, and great grace was upon them all. It's essentially saying, which we all ought to say as Christians, no matter how it works out in practice, it all belongs to Jesus. Everything I am and everything I have. That's what it means to confess 
Jesus Christ is Lord. It all belongs to him. I'm at his disposal and so is everything I have. He may not ask me to do anything particularly radical with it, but if he does, it's his prerogative to do so. It's a radical community, not a needy person among them. I mean, there's no Centrelink here. Right? There's no social services. In fact, in this culture, if you were struggling, it was, probably con- it was probably concluded that you had somehow done something wrong and upset the gods and you deserve it. So no one's going to help you. But amongst the Christian community, people were meeting each other's needs. That's what legalism does, by the way. Legalism will have you saying to people who aren't as good as you, oh, they did, if they just got their act together, yeah, well, of course they're where they're at. Christian community wasn't like that. Not a needy person among them. People selling assets, houses and lands. Obviously, they clearly had the capacity to give. I don't think they were putting themselves out on the street, but obviously they had maybe three or four investment properties. I don't know. And, you know, well, let's, let's get O'Neill's and sell that one and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, give, we'll give the proceeds away. Now, here's a, here's a point. Is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? Is it describing what happened Or what should happen? Should we all sell our houses after church today and give it all away? Should we start some kind of special community somewhere in the southwest where we can all live together and look after each other's needs financially by the proceeds of everything we've sold? Don't laugh. Many have attempted such things in history based on passages like this. Some quite weird and strange groups, in fact. That's not what Luke is describing here, is it? I just sold my house. We did. Sold our house. Still waiting for the finance to come through unconditional. But when it does, should Michelle and I sit down and you know, get on the online banking and EFT, pay off the mortgage, sure, and whatever's left, That's not what Luke is prescribing here. He is describing what people did as they were gripped by the gospel. However, let's not let ourselves off the hook too quickly because Christians throughout history have lived out the principles that we see there. Because of Jesus and because of the gospel of his kingdom. Christians have held loosely to the things of this world and practiced extraordinary generosity. Living lives with everything, where everything is understood as belonging to Jesus. How many of you know of Kingsway Christian College in Perth? Quite a few. You might not know the story of Kingsway Christian College. If you go past now, you're like, wow, what a... 
What an impressive place. But it started, I think, with four families who mortgaged their homes to the back teeth to get it going. And it didn't suddenly just turn around and they were fine and got their money paid back in you know, no time at all. I always think about those guys. I think, wow, would I do that? You see, the gospel does these sorts of things in our lives when we're gripped by it. It loosens our grip on our stuff and focuses our hearts on God's kingdom. And that reality is seen in this one guy here, right, with a really cool nickname. If you're looking for a child name at some point in the future, I highly recommend Barnabas, uh, son of encouragement. Not sure what you do if it's a daughter, but anyway. Um, never, yeah, let's move on. Um, here's Barnabas. He doesn't look like he's from Jerusalem. He's from Cyprus. He's a native of Cyprus. Maybe he's moved to Jerusalem. I don't know. He sells a field that belonged to him and brought the money to the apostles' feet. you got to love Barnabas. Seriously. He appears six times in the Acts, And every single time, his name rings true of him. Here he is here. It's the first mention of him. All right? A couple of other places. When they go on the first missionary journey, Barnabas is like, yep, count me in. I'm there. What do you need? Do you need anything? He's right on board. Uh, when Paul gets converted, I don't know whether you remember this, but the church wasn't exactly super positive about welcoming Paul into the gathering. Primarily because he'd been pursuing Christians and locking them up and even killing some or being at least part of it. The people were like, yeah, I don't know. I don't want him in my growth group, thanks. It was Barnabas who went and found him and brought him to the church and said, hey, God's done something here. It was Barnabas who first went to Antioch, the Gentile city, when the gospel was spreading and people were being saved. And they, they sent Barnabas to check it out. And I love this phrase. It says when he got there, he saw the grace of God and was glad. How cool is that? To see the grace. It's kind of like this, right? And great grace was upon them. You've got to love Barnabas. And it's not just Barnabas. It's the lives of all those who believe they are of one heart and one soul, united around the gospel, and no one was lacking. It all belonged to Jesus, and they were living lives of dependent trust in him. God shapes and strengthens his church. You can see it there, can't you? As I mentioned earlier, we've signed up for Reach Australia, and we've got the first intensive not next week, the week after. And I have to do a whole bunch of prep for it. I was like, I'm a bit low in the tank at the moment and some of them are quite personal questions and I'm just like, oh, I, don't know, I don't know how I'm going to focus on all this, but I'm going to get there. Um, but one of the things that they want us to do is to think through our lives and think through key moments and events in our lives. They use the phrase, things that made your heart sing and things that made your heart sting. And they want us to list them out and to get to the question, really, I think, 
what are the key things that are shaping you or have shaped you. And some of them I'm not super excited about writing up, but one of them, I think if you're a follower of Jesus, we could all include is the moment or the time or the, the season of our lives where we became Christians. That's got to be the most significant experience, event in our lives. And not just initially the time when it happened, but from then on. It's meant to be day by day until we stand before Jesus. This is what God intends for all who believe. And this is what he does in the lives of all who believe. And not just as individuals, but collectively as he shapes and strengthens his church. So what is the reality? What is the key reality that is shaping your life now, at this moment? Is it the reality of Jesus? Is it the risen, reigning, returning one day, Lord Jesus, who continues his mission on earth now, until he returns, through his people, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that shaping? Is your faith in Jesus and the great grace that comes to you through him shaping you? Is it shaping us? How can you know? Well, here's a couple of diagnostic questions. Is it often on your lips? Does it stir your affections towards God? Do you love his church, his bride, the church he purchased with his own blood? Is there a deep, imperfect, yes, but deep generosity in you in terms of your serving and your giving? Is your stuff surrendered to Jesus? God shapes and strengthens his church, firstly. Secondly, God protects and purifies his church. So we've had this beautiful snapshot of the first kind of group there that we see. Now we see what we see is actually a satanic attack on the church. One among many, by the way, that will come throughout the New Testament era and continue to come right up to this very day. I don't know whether you know, I'm sure you do. Satan hates the church. He hates this thing that Jesus has brought into being through his powerful death and resurrection and the pouring out of his spirit. He hates it. He hates the fact that Jesus is risen, which means he's doomed eventually, finally one day, that is, he's already doomed now and he's just waiting the final day. He hates it all. And so where he can attack, where he can, he can defile, he will. And in this case, it comes through two people who are busy, as it often does, seeking the praise of others and not the glory of God. Two people who appear to be one thing on the outside, 
but in reality are quite the opposite. It would seem that they see what Barnabas does and has done and how the church has received it and they want the same. They want the same respect that perhaps Barnabas wasn't necessarily seeking but the church gave as he did what he did. They, they want him appreciation that, again, Barnabas wasn't necessarily seeking, but the church gave. They watched it happen and they're like, yeah, we want that too. They wanted the same, but they didn't have the same heart. And they didn't want the same sacrifice. So they come up with a satanically inspired plan to secure the praise of people, to deceive the church, to look good before others, and most seriously at all of all, to lie to the Holy Spirit and to God. This act of satanically inspired hypocrisy threatened the life and the health of the, this infant New Testament church. And though one level this sin was against the church, it's clearly, as we read, against, ultimately against God. One helpful thing that comes out here is this, this intimate connection between Jesus and his church. He is jealous for the church. It's his bride. We hear words like he is the head, the church is his body, he is the groom, she is his bride. There's this intimate connection between Jesus and his church. He is jealous for her. He loves her. He gave himself up for her. And so he will protect her. And so what we see is God acting in judgment to protect and to purify his church. It's one of the rare occasions where God intervenes directly in judgment against sin. Let's read it again. Verse 3. Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself parts of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. And Ananias heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. In verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her laugh. You've got to be honest, right? It's pretty confronting. Let's not kind of sugarcoat it. It's very confronting. Frightening, really, if you think about it. Certainly seems it was for those at the time. Verse 5 says, Great fear came upon all those who heard it. Verse 11 says, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Not surprising. Same question again, descriptive or prescriptive? 
hopefully descriptive, hey? Why? Why did this happen? Why so full? Well, here are three things that we can think about that help us understand what's going on. Firstly, we've talked a little bit about this as we've gone through the book of Acts. The Bible or salvation history is not a flat story. It has peaks in it. It flattens out. Peaks and flattens out. So creation, for example, is a massive peak as God speaks the world into existence. The flood is a massive peak as he floods the world in just and righteous judgment and saves Noah and his family. The exodus. Huge peak as God, we're told, comes down from heaven to redeem his people out of slavery and at the same time judges those who oppose him. Massive peaks of God's intense activity. At Mount Sinai, what are the people told? Don't come near this mountain, right? Don't come. This is huge what's going on here. Don't even touch this mountain. Peaks of God's active salvation in the world but when God's doing that salvation and judgment always are side by side always are side by side salvation for those who trust in him judgment for those who oppose him and that's what we have here our first snapshot was those who all those who believed were of one heart and one soul salvation Ananias and Sapphira sought to deceive the church, lie to God. From their hearts, they were nowhere near believing in Jesus, just manipulating the situation. So there's judgment. This intense activity, this intense period in the life of the church. That's one thing. Salvation and judgment always go together. Also, we've got snapshots of the future here, right? Snapshots of the future, of the final day of salvation and judgment. We've got a snapshot of all those who trusted in Jesus as a snapshot of what it's going to be like with all those who have trusted in Jesus in redeemed community with him in his presence one day. Right? Snapshot of that. But also a snapshot of a fearful day of judgment for all those who oppose him. This is what Luke is describing for us. It's not just Ananias and Sapphira who will come under God's just and righteous judgment. It's all who oppose Jesus, all who reject Jesus. And alternatively, all those who put their hope in Jesus will experience his salvation. This is what Luke is describing, and friends, I hope it is, and it should have, it certainly has me, it should have a sobering effect on us. It should increase, if you like, the gravitas, that is the weightiness of our faith and the depth of our thankfulness. Because if it wasn't for Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and yours and you putting your hope and faith in him, the same would be waiting me. 
Have a listen to this verse from Romans. Paul says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified or made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. There it is. Greater gravitas about what it means to be Christian and deeper thankfulness for what it took for us to be able to be saved. The third thing, is that Jesus is protecting and purifying his church. Remember this verse. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's happening in this story. There's a satanic attack on the church and there's the potential corruption and defiling of the church. Jesus is both protecting and purifying his church. As I mentioned earlier, um, we recently, hopefully, sold our house. And one of the things I found out that you can do when you're selling your house is you can get things photoshopped in to your online um, display. For example, they can make your lawn Fully green. Incredible. When it's not. They can also put furniture in your rooms when there isn't any. Now, we didn't actually use it. The patches were still there on the photos and we had enough furniture so we didn't need any photoshopped in. But the reality is, if people know what they're looking for, they can, they can actually spot it. Because it's not real. And if this passage tells you something, it tells you this. You cannot Photoshop the Christian life. can't. God knows. He knows our hearts. He knows where we're at. Even if we're able to completely fool everyone else, he sees. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. He cannot be lied to. He cannot be deceived. He is all-seeing and all-knowing. He cannot be mocked and he will not be mocked. But more to the point, he doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for me. Some kind of counterfeit, half-baked, fake Christianity. He doesn't want that. That's a tragedy as far as God is concerned. He wants us to know him deeply and powerfully and genuinely and graciously and authentic, authentically. And so it's a good place for us to take stock. We're encouraged to do so, do so in the Bible by the Apostle Paul. He says, examine yourselves to the Corinthians to see whether you're in the faith. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you if you, if you know him? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So this isn't kind of some you know, morbid introspection that we're always doing. You know, oh, I wonder whether I'm a Christian. I wonder whether I'm a Christian. No, this is just an occasional checkup. Am I continuing to trust in Jesus? 
God protects and purifies his church. So I want to ask you this morning, as I ask myself, are you more concerned with what others think of you than what God actually knows about you? Here's another one. Are you presenting to others as a follower of Jesus while there is rampant sin taking place in your life? If you are, God knows. And he's calling you to repent. Calling you to turn away from that. From that masquerade. And to come to something real and true and life-changing and grace-giving. Something beautiful, eternal. Something that cost him his son. I wonder, do we have a healthy fear and reverence when it comes to Jesus and his church? Or do we just like, ah, take it or leave it? doesn't matter what I say about whoever. doesn't matter what I think about the church. doesn't matter when I turn up. doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. Or do we have like, no, this is his bride. And I've been brought into it by his blood. This is something precious to him and therefore precious to me. And I, I want to guard my mouth about what I say and what I don't say. I, I want my mouth to be seasoned with salt and to be building up those around me rather than tearing them down. Are you encouraged that ultimately Jesus will protect and purify his church and deal justly with all those who seek to deceive it and defile it? You know, do you ever wonder how on earth will the church get to the last day and be there in the presence of Jesus? Because Jesus will protect and purify his church. What does that great doxology say? Now to him who is able to keep you and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Aren't you glad he's going to get you to the end? Lastly and real quickly, God gathers and grows his church. Verse 12 to 16. That intense activity that we've talked about as God's in this like saving period where the church is being born and the gospel is starting to go to the nations. We continue to see that as Jesus continues to do his saving work through his apostles. And these events that have just taken place, do notice, friends, it doesn't seem to hinder the spread of the gospel, does it? You see that? Verse 13, none of the rest, that is the community, dared join them. Not surprising in some ways, right? But held them in high esteem. What are they saying? Saying there's an awesome God among those people. That's what they're saying. They're not thinking that the people themselves are that great. Just going, well, there's an awesome God that they know and love and serve. And then the very next verse, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes. I think that means lots of both men and women. Isn't that interesting? The gospel's not dumbed down. The truths about God are not dumbed down. 
it's like pretty stark, confronting, but amazing. Highlighting the goodness of God in Jesus, dying for our sins. And the church grows. The church grows. Because the apostles are continuing to do what they were called to do in Acts one eight, when Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses. You will point to me in Jerusalem, in the next place in Samaria, that place where Jews don't go. What's the next one? Jerusalem. Judea, sorry, first. That's the northern kingdom. No, that's the southern kingdom. They're okay. Samaria is not so good. They're the northern kingdom. No, the apostate ones. We don't go there. No, the gospel's going to go there though. And it's even going to go to the Gentiles. This is how God worked through those whom he sent. And this is how God works now through those he sends. Jesus said to his apostles, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. This is where we get this idea of sent. How's God going to grow his church? How's he going to grow this church? How's Reach Australia going to see 200 churches planted in the next 10 years? How are we going to see people saved by Jesus in this region of 200,000 people? How are we going to see people saved in our workplaces, in our families, etc.? Well, Ultimately, God will do the saving right, but he will do it through those he sent. I think the question I want us to leave, leave with us as we finish this morning is, is that word how you see your life? As someone sent. Someone sent by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God, to point others to Jesus. God shapes and strengthens his church. He protects and purifies it and he gathers and grows it, grows it and he invites us to join him in what he's doing. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Father, we come before you again and we thank you so much for your word and we do thank you uh, even for the difficult parts that are hard to grasp, hard for us to understand. Lord, your ways are not our ways. What we think is best is often not. You know what is best. You're working out your sovereign purposes in your world and even though this passage is certainly confronting it's a gracious warning as well for us to come to you to believe from the heart not to masquerade Lord to love your church to be shaped by your son and to be sent by you into your world Lord as we finish this morning and as we head into this week public holiday or not May that word sent define much of our purpose in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, that we might glorify him and have great joy as we